Okay, well, I cannot wait to get started today. We have, once again, another Pastor Moline special served hot and fresh just for you. Uh, we have a couple star players in our, our session today, namely Caligula and Claudius, two Roman emperors. So we're going to talk about them just a little bit because this really serves well to illustrate the historical context that uh, the apostles are operating within. Um, this helps deepen our understanding of, of all the different things that are going on, all the challenges that the really early church faced, uh, and yet they continue to endure, not only endure, but actually flourish and still perform all these amazing things, uh, helping each other out with all the different challenges of the world, especially this famine that we're going to hear about here in Acts 11. So, to start off, we'll read Acts 11, 27 to 30. We're starting on session 18 today. So, Nick, if you would start us off with 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem one of them named Agabus stood up and were told by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders of Hannah Barnabas and Saul. Alright, so first what we are pointing out here is uh, the words in verse 28. Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit. What does this tell us, these words, by the Spirit? Right, so this is not just um, a fun prediction like we might make today, like... Oh, man, uh, this new president, he's just going to make the economy go down the tanks. I can feel it in my bones. Uh, this is by the Spirit. Hey, this is going to happen. Uh, this is going to be a challenge that the church faces. And the, the real purpose of this prophecy was to prepare the church at large for what was about to happen in order to uh, do things in good order. So the church can be prepared for serving its other members, its, its other uh, brothers and sisters in other locations. Uh, so this is, this is a true thing, something that really, at this time, really is going to happen. We know actually really did happen. This helps us to further date, more specifically, exactly when all these things were happening. Because we have this famine recorded in other places as well. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about Claudius. So when it tells us that this happened in the days of this person's reign, well, then we know we have very concrete dates for a range of when this could happen. And we're going to further narrow down the date of when this famine could have happened and when all these events here in Acts 11 uh, really happened. So our history lesson. We're going to start off with Caligula. Caligula was a, uh, a Roman emperor that reigned right before Claudius. He did not reign for a very long time because he was crazy. Um, so Tiberius was the emperor before him, and nobody liked him at all. So when he died, everyone was like, yay, he's finally gone. There was literally celebrations for months and months. There was like hundreds of thousands of animals sacrificed in celebration, not necessarily of Caligula, this next Roman emperor, but just the fact that Tiberius was gone because nobody liked him. And there was constant attempts against his life just to get him out of there. So now they go, oh, finally, Caligula is here. He's going to make everything so amazing. And for the first few months of Caligula's reign, uh, it was actually kind of looked like it was going to be true. So one of the things that Caligula did was he said, okay, all these uh, army people that helped us conquer all these new lands during the reign of Tiberius, you're all getting money. And they went, woohoo, we love money. 
So Caligula was like, all right, he's popular with all these uh, different army generals, all these people he's giving money to. And then in the people of uh, Rome, the actual city of Rome, he's constantly throwing games, gladiator games and all kinds of different races and all these different things. And he's giving all these people money and throwing games and giving them free food. And everyone's like, oh, wow, this is awesome. And not only that, uh, he was starting all these public works projects, new aqueducts to bring nice, fresh, clean water into the city, building all these roads and bridges. And so everyone's like, Caligula is awesome. But as was pretty common back in the day, uh, everybody wanted more power. So there's always going to be attempts on the emperor's life. At one point, Caligula got poisoned. This was about six or seven months into his reign. Right in the middle of him doing all this really fun stuff for everybody. And he almost died. But during this, then he was like, what the heck? You know, I thought I was making everybody like me. Uh, I thought that this was going really well. Why would somebody try to poison me? This is kind of all speculation by the historians, but it's... It's pretty well documented. After he recovered from this poisoning, about six months into his reign, then he just kind of started to turn. So immediately after he recovered, he started having senators assassinated or put to death uh, publicly or secretly. He started killing more and more people. All the people that were close to him during his reign, he started getting them assassinated and pushing them further and further away. And he stopped caring about what anybody else really wanted. And Caligula started to just care about what Caligula wanted. So over the course of the next few years, he went from being this uh, man of the people to being this totally crazy guy. He would build houses and mansions for himself. He would uh, start dressing up as different mythological gods and start claiming that he himself uh, really was God, that everyone should worship him. He started spending mountains and mountains of money on temples dedicated to himself, statues dedicated to himself. He started practicing all different types of uh, sexual sins, um, debauchery, and there was a lot of historians that talked about how he would just... I want to say this as cleanly as possible. Incest with his sisters. Yes, incest with his sisters. They said that he turned the royal palace into a brothel, essentially. And so he stopped caring about being a ruler, started caring about just himself. Uh, what wound up happening to Caligula, he was planning to move to, was it Egypt? Off the top of my head. I think it was... To Egypt or somewhere over there um, to the east of the Mediterranean and he said okay I'm gonna stop being the Roman Emperor and I'm gonna go over here and live as I truly am I'm going to live as a god and I'm going to command everyone here to worship me as a god because that's really what I am and he was proclaiming all these things he was gonna stop ruling Rome altogether and the senators at the time, they all saw the writing on the wall. Okay, he's going absolutely insane. He, this is not just a political posturing anymore. Literally believes he really is God. And when that happens, then there's going to be this huge power struggle in Rome, and it's going to collapse in on itself. We can't let Caligula just go off somewhere, declare that he's a god, and let everything fall apart in his wake. So, about that time, there started to be a lot of different plots against Caligula's life. Um, one other aside that I just remembered, and I can't leave this out because it's so funny. Emperor Tiberius the emperor before Caligula, he had an advisor who was there just talking about who would be the next emperor after Tiberius died. Tiberius goes, well, what about Caligula? And the advisor goes, huh, 
Caligula, he would sooner be uh, he would sooner ride his co- horse across this two mile wide bay than be emperor. But lo and behold, Caligula really did become emperor. So to snub his nose at this advisor who laughed at him and said he'll never be emperor, he took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of grain barges. He put them all together across this two mile wide bay of water built a bridge across it so he could ride his horse across this bay of water and just be like, see, look, I'm emperor and I rode my horse across the bay. Ha ha. And that's it. <laughs> that's, that's the whole purpose of, of why he did that. And in the meantime, uh, they needed those grain barges. So that further contributed to this famine that we're going to be talking about here. Um, before I move on from Caligula, Pastor, was there anything else that you wanted to add? If you want to read more, you can read. They have first-hand accounts from people like Suetonius and whatnot. He, this guy, I mean, there could be movies and movies made about Caligula's life, and he's featured in a lot of movies already, I think. Uh, totally crazy stuff. So... Back to the assassination of Caligula. A lot of different people wanted him dead. So a lot of separate plots started happening. And they all started going, okay, we need to get Caligula out of here. Eventually, a lot of different people found out that, oh, we're all plotting against Caligula? Uh, Let's all get together (laughs) and all kill him at the same time. (laughs) So they took all these different uh, conspiracies and everything against him. They formed them all into one. And they wound up stabbing Caligula to death and uh, killing his entire family and anyone that was close or loyal to him. Um, One of the main conspirator against Caligula was this Praetorian guard. That's just like one of the emperor's guards, basically. Is there a better way to explain that? Bodyguard. Yeah. And they had a whole contingency of these guards. Uh, his name was Korea, C-H-A-E-R-E-A. So, he was the main conspirator against Caligula. And so he goes up there and he stabs Caligula first. And he tells everyone, okay, kill the rest of his family and all this other stuff. Well, not all of the emperor's bodyguards really agreed with killing Caligula and killing the entire, like basically royal family. So, Claudius now comes in. He was afraid, and he ran away and went and hid in the palace. And so all these guys are getting murdered, and everyone is getting killed and everything. Well, this praetorian guard finds Claudius hiding in the palace. And Claudius is like, well, nice knowing you, I guess. And they're like, no, no, no. You're going to be the next emperor. So this bodyguard takes Claudius out of, the, out of the palace, averts this massive political disaster, and says, okay, Claudius, uh, now you're going to be emperor. They send a message over to the senators, who, meanwhile, the whole time, were like, okay, we need to bring the power back to us. We want the senators to be in charge of Rome instead of the emperor. So now that Caligula is literally just got killed five minutes ago, how can we do this? And then this messenger comes up and says, hey, by the way, uh, the new emperor is Claudius. And they're like, dang it. We had this big plan. We were going to take all the power. And so they try to figure out, okay, how can we still maintain all of our power? I know. Send Claudius here so that way we can approve of him being the emperor. Well, when someone has to approve someone else being emperor, where does the power like really lie? With the people approving of the emperor. So Claudius goes, no, not going to do that. Uh, I'm the emperor and they can just deal with it. So this huge political disaster was averted because Claudius uh, decided not to go over and be approved by the Senate He was just like, nope, I'm the emperor now. Deal with it. And so uh, begins a new and 
kind of good period for the Roman Empire. So, if that wasn't enough information for you. So that was the first, that was, first emperor not to be approved by the Senate? Yes. Because otherwise there would be this really big power struggle and the, the whole political system in Rome would kind of start to degrade because it was already going towards that, towards that whole situation. Um, were there any more questions before I move on to getting to talk about Claudius now? Because this is also a really fun story about Claudius. Okay, anything else that you wanted to add before I move on? Okay. I'm going to keep referring back to you because, I mean, he's got this massive amount of knowledge about this stuff, and uh, I'd be remiss <laughs> if I missed anything. So, Claudius. Uh, as it, I'm going to refer to the, uh, the study here. So he reigned as imperator from January 41 AD to October 54, 14 years thereabouts, which is actually a, kind of a long time considering uh, Caligula reigned for, I think it was four, four years, because <laughs> he was crazy and everybody wanted him out of there right away. So, uh, Claudius, when he was born, he was kind of feeble, and he was a little bit deformed. When he was really young, he got sick, and so then that kind of affected his development. He wasn't a very good speaker because he stuttered a lot, and wasn't, he didn't present himself as being overly confident or anything. He always had a limp wherever he went. So as a little kid, everyone was like, oh great, he's kind of, you know, the runt of the litter type of situation where here comes Claudius. Hi Claudius, how are you today? And they thought that he was really dumb. Uh, his mother constantly derided him and called him all sorts of names and used him as uh, the benchmark for stupidity, is what one historian wrote, that his mother just hated him and called him a monster all the time. So eventually they kind of sent him away and he was like, okay, finally I can live my life a little bit. And he really was not that dumb at all. He was actually kind of smart. So he got this interest in history, and he started doing a lot of reading, and eventually he proved that he was pretty smart. And so then his family was like, oh, cool, uh, maybe you are actually a little bit useful. And they sort of kept him around, and that's why he was able to be in a position to be declared the emperor, is because he was always just kind of around, and he was technically part of the family. So that all plays into why the Praetorian Guard put him as emperor because everybody thought that he was this really big idiot and they thought oh he's going to be really easy to control uh, we can just tell him to do whatever we want and he's just going to do it so this will be perfect this is exactly what we need kind of just uh, you know a puppet we hear that kind of talk about all kinds of different leaders around the world right that's what they were planning to do with Claudius but he really was not dumb he's actually kind of smart so immediately um, going back now and, and tying this back into uh, our overall narrative, they declared Claudius as the emperor, right? And the senators couldn't do anything about it. We had this little aside here that this is why we have the Second Amendment. Because back then, there was always this huge power struggle between all of these uh, huge political figures and everything was just up to them. If they said something, uh, it went. If they said Claudius was the emperor, that's the way it was. And there's not anything anybody could do about it because all of the power resided with them. That's not the way that it is today, especially here in the United States, just because, uh, as a quick aside, we have the Second Amendment. We have the power that lies with the people, the consent of the governed, in other words. So just, just a quick little sideline there that thankfully this doesn't really happen quite as much today, especially not in the U.S. 
Uh, okay, back again to Claudius. Where was I? He immediately started being a really good emperor. Everybody really liked him. He started securing bread for everybody. He, was, he continued all of those public projects that Caligula started but didn't finish. So he got all these aqueducts built, and he's got all these roads built, and all these bridges built, and so trade could just absolutely flourish, and people were making money, and he balances the, the budget of the whole Roman Empire, and so everyone's like, hey, this is awesome. You know, Claudius, he's making everybody money. We're all doing pretty good now. Uh, sweet. And on top of all of that, that he builds this port in Ostia, which helps a lot to bring more grain into actual Rome. Because one of the problems of Rome at the time was food. We've got millions and millions of people in the city of Rome, but there's not enough farmland around there to support Rome. They had to import all their food. This plays into, again, the famine that we're going to be talking about a little bit. So, we've got this port, and we've got this famine that's happening. All of a sudden, people are not able to eat as much. Uh, they're running short on food, and there's going to be this big problem. So Claudius is invading Britain at the time. He's got all these public works projects going, yet there's not enough food in Rome. So Claudius, he builds this big port, and he starts uh, insuring these merchant ships in order that they can bring grain from Egypt up to Rome. But there's a big famine specifically in Syria. And that just disrupts the entire supply chain of food for the whole Roman Empire. Because Syria doesn't have enough grain to export, so then they have to go everywhere else to get their food. But then all those places start running out of grain too. And so there's just like this big widespread famine that's talked about here in Acts. Uh, let's see, where do I want to go with this next? I think we'll go to the study here, Erosius. Reading from the study, uh, point C1. In this year, Claudius, the second Roman emperor to invade Britain, put much of the island under his control and added the Orkneys to Rome's kingdom. This took place in the fourth year of his rule. In this same year, a great famine in Syria took place, which Luke mentions in his book, The Acts of the Apostles. Due to his incompetence, the Emperor Claudius Nero almost lost control of the British Isle because he was overextended. He was up here in Britain. He was spending all this money on all these different public works projects. He was giving away a bunch of money to his army in order to keep them happy. And then all of a sudden we have this big famine. Um, what do you have to add to that, Pastor? I feel like I'm, I'm leaving something out here. Right? So now this is how you find the date that we go back to in the book of Acts. So in those days, prophets came and said there's going to be a famine over the whole world that took place during the days of Claudius. So Herodias, looking back, says that happened in the fourth year of Claudius' reign. Which means it happens about when? 45, 46, somewhere in there, AD. So now we know everything that's happened in the book of Acts so far happened in the first 13 years after Jesus' resurrection. And here's a timestamp to tell us that. And then we can also look forward because. Um, Victor hasn't mentioned this, which is okay. <laughs> we'll get to it. Uh, you guys know Felix later on in the book of Acts. Paul's arrested and he's tried before Felix, who is a friend of Claudius. And Claudius made him the governor of um, Judea. And we know when he was done being governor of Judea. So we have another timestamp. And so everything that we're going to read now happens between 46 and 58. So we have another little 12-year area uh, with the rest of the book of Acts where we're going to see those things taking place. 
Okay. Timestamp there gives us a, a firm date. This is a historical account by St. Luke. Right. And that was another important point as well that uh, historians throughout the centuries have constantly referred back to biblical sources, especially Luke, for all kinds of uh, historical events. Because Luke was a really great historian. Leonard, did you have a question? Orosius, he wrote in the fourth century, though. So he's looking back 300 years. Yeah, 250. Yep. Yeah. But he has his sources. He um, has his sources. A lot that we don't. A <laughs> lot that we don't. A lot that we don't. And I think that's where uh, point two that's underneath there is important too because we have more than just Erosius who says these things. Yes, so that segues perfectly into reading through this quote from Josephus uh, in his book Antiquities. Herod, the brother of Agrippa, who had perished, was allowed to govern over Chalcis. Now, we're making special note here of the words had perished, which is why those are underlined. So keep that in the back of your head as we're going through here. He, that is Herod, asked Claudius Caesar for control over the temple along with the sacred treasury and the ability to choose the high priests. And he was given all that he had asked for. Around this time lived Queen Helena of Adiabene, along with her son, Azates. Am I pronouncing that one right? Okay. Uh, they both began to follow the Jewish way, turning away from their past lifestyle. Her arrival was of great help to the masses in Jerusalem, and paying attention again here, uh, for there was a famine in the land that overtook them, and many people died of starvation. So we have another uh, extra-biblical source, a point of, of history here, a timestamp, like Pastor Moline said, that someone else is taking note of this famine that really did happen. Uh, when it became necessary to obtain food abroad, Queen Helena sent some of her students with money to the city of Alexandria to purchase as much grain as possible. She also sent others to the island of Cyprus to bring back dried figs. This whole process happened very quickly, and as soon as they had returned, they handed the provisions out to those who were in dire need of them. Because of this, she left behind a legacy and was held in great respect by the people and the nation at large. And when her son, Izates, became aware of this famine, he sent a large gift to the leaders in Jerusalem. So, once again, paying specific attention to uh, Agrippa, who died, this gives us another point of reference, because we know, going to point one here, top of this, the back of the page here, uh, Agrippa dies in 44 AD. We note Josephus' words after he perished. Then, we also know that Herod, this guy who got assigned to govern over Chalcis, uh, he dies in 48. So, if Agrippa dies in 44, and then Herod gets assigned to be governor over this area, and he dies in 48, and there was a famine during this time that Herod was reigning in this specific area, the famine had to be between 44 and 48. So once again, this uh, coincides with what we already read from Erosius, that the famine very likely happened in 45 to 46 AD which also then gives us a time frame for what's going on here in the book of Acts. Uh, any other? Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say the most recent edition of Biblical Archaeology magazine also has an article about Helena of Adiabene um, because they think they found her tomb. Um, the tomb... There's a tomb called the Tomb of the King uh, that's a giant underground tomb north of Jerusalem. And they think that it was built for Herod Agrippa. He was building it for himself, but he died before it was finished. So he died and was buried somewhere else. 
It's kind of ironic. ironic. What's that? It's kind of ironic. You die yeah. in the middle of digging your own grave. Helena, because she had all this popularity, because providing food for people was probably buried there, and afterwards she purchased the, the plot and finished the tomb not as grandly as it was designed, uh, but she was buried there then as well. Yep. So she garnered a lot of respect and love of the people by doing this, by being charitable and, and purchasing all this food and giving it to all the people of the area. Uh, okay, so then finishing off this. Uh, so yeah, go ahead. Please. Uh, what, what is Helena Queen of? Yeah, I'm going to make sure I say it right. She was a queen in some place east. East or north? I'd have to go look. But she had been married to someone, and she was unhappy in the marriage, and so she kind of left. And she came to Jerusalem with a bunch of money, running away from her husband that she didn't want to be married to, converted to Judaism, and was kind of like a great patron in Jerusalem at that time. Did a lot of works and things like that, and people loved her. Um, I can't remember where the place was, though. I'll have to go look. OK. Uh, so she's not queen of Rome? No. 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 This is all talking about people who are not in Rome, but in the area. According to Google, it was uh, a city-state of Parthia, which okay. is a little bit north so, and east. So, yeah. I okay. believe. Okay. So, if that helps. But she had a lot of money. <laughs> and that's what's important to our narrative here. Barb, did you also have a question? You were raising your hand? Okay. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. Um, all right, so then finishing off this uh, discussion on the time stamping where all this stuff happened, we're going to point D on the back of our sheet. Able, we're able, therefore, to date this famine to approximately 45 AD. We note the response of the church in the midst of this famine. People were starving to death, so the church sent relief at the hands of the pastors, Saul and Barnabas. So we're right around this time of 45 to 46 AD. The church is very young, uh, but it's growing really quickly. We have several accounts so far that say, oh, and so many souls were added that day. And uh, we have all the apostles in Jerusalem that, you know, they gave these awesome sermons and so many souls were added that day and people were baptized. And we have so far Peter going, hey, we have to extend this message also to the Greeks, people who are not just Jews. You remember we had, uh, Peter had the vision that we read about uh, of the sheet descending and all of the animals and the sheet. And God said, uh, what I have made clean, do not call common. So we have the church that is just exploding right now. And uh, to top it all off, now there is going to be a great famine. This is going to set a really important precedent for the church throughout all the rest of history, all the way up to today. Uh, the things that they were doing back then are still happening today. Um, so we're going to go back again and read these four verses from Acts 11, 27 to 30. And we're going to talk about the church's response to this great need in general. Uh, so, Barb, if you would start us off with 27. We'll read one verse by one verse here. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, yep. stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Disciples, each according to their ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. 
Okay, so specifically we're going to focus on verse 29 right now. The disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Um, so when people were going to give money, historically and all throughout the Old Testament and everything, uh, you know what they called that, just right off the top of your head, when they gave 10% of their money, right? A tithe. So there was a specific amount, you need to give this much money, uh, this is commanded, etc., etc. So now here, verse 29, we have everyone according to his ability. This is a little different. This is not commanded by any means. This is a response according to the gospel that is being preached. We need to help our brothers. Our brothers and sisters are starving. There's this great famine. We need to help them as much as we can. This isn't commanded. This is not your tithe. This isn't your 10% or anything like that. This is anyone who can help, help. Whatever you can afford. They're not trying to place any kind of undue burden on anyone. They're not trying to force anyone to give any more than what they need to because God loves a cheerful giver, right? So this is important. The church is responding to the need at large, starting with their brothers and sisters, distributing it to the church. Well, how do we know that it was specifically done through the church and to the church, like from one church here to another church over here? Read verse 30 again. And so they did so, uh, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word here, uh, the elders, who do you think that was? Um, well, it wouldn't have been the apostles, right? It would have said sending it to the apostles there. Um, but you're on the right track. Right. In other words, it starts with a P, the pastors there. Uh, that's, the word that's used there in Greek is uh, presbutera, presbyteroi, I think it is. Uh, presbyters, or shepherds. Elders, pastors. That's, that's the name that they commonly called them back then, elders or pastors. So it's not the elders that we would have today that are lay elders, you know, like uh, Dale or Ken or uh, Rich or, you know, any of the elders that we have here in the church that are not like pastors or called and ordained. Sending it from, or from their church through... Paul and Barnabas to the pastors of this other church in order that they can distribute it as everyone has need. Anything to add there, Pastor? I think it's important to point out, I mean, Vicar's doing it great. How did, how did charity take place in the early early church? Well, they received a prophecy that this was going to happen. And believe the prophecy guys handle it. <laughs> yeah, fine, you take over. Which I think is, um, okay, it's fine. Maybe they can do some things that we can't, but I don't think we should stop having those sorts of things within our own congregation. So, if, if we have members of our congregation who are struggling, what should we do? Send them to the food bank, right? No, no! Um, or even some congregations, I don't know if there's any at the seminary right now, there's some deaconesses or uh, even within congregations, those who are 
not deaconesses, who are designated to be a parish nurse. Have you ever heard of that? And so a member of the congregation, often a retired nurse or something, goes around and acts like a nurse to the members of the church who need a nurse. Uh, so if someone is on hospice care, they'll come if, if there needs to be help cleaning something up or, or showing compassion. This is a way tangential to what I know what you're talking about. <laughs> these are great things for us to think about. How do we still do these things to show compassion for each other? Not tangential at all. Um, you know, a lot of the church fathers and a lot of the prominent theological voices all throughout history have been very vocal about that. Walther talks about that a lot in his pastoral theology books. Um, he's always talking about, here's what the church should do. He was adamant that Christians should never, ever have to go to the government for anything. Because then, that's just embarrassing for the church. The church should be able to take care of everyone. The church should be able to do this. He had very, very high expectations. Sometimes I think a little too high, uh, but they were all very well-intentioned expectations of the church. Marilyn? does it? Yeah, there's rules that say uh, if Leonard and I want to adopt a child together, if we're an organization that helps people adopt, we have to help everyone. Which puts us in a really weird spot, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, yeah. Social yes. Security, right? That, when did that get invented? I mean, this also, this also ties in really well to the Bible study we've been having with the elders as well. Um, like Dale and Ken, I'm sure you know, they talked about the office of the widow. A lot of times, the widow would be completely dependent on her husband. So then when he died, she didn't have uh, a way to sustain herself and her family. So then she kind of became... Uh, a worker of the church in not a pastoral sense, but in, like you said, kind of a nursing sense. The widow would go around to all the different people within the church. If they needed anything, she would help out and she would volunteer kind of her time. And in response, the church would help her out with anything that she needed. The, the church at large would donate things to her and help take care of her and everything. It was kind of a neat thing. Uh, any other questions or comments before we move on? Yes, Nick. The elders is... say it's not likely at all because they we talked about uh, 
I think it was back in Acts 6, was it not, where they laid their hands on certain people and made them elders of the congregation in order that they can serve the congregation or the church there. Um, so this laying on of hands would always happen before el- the, uh, on the elders, which is another word for pastors. That's how they made pastors and how they ordained pastors, was this laying on of hands. Uh, so that's how the Bible always talks about the elders. What else do you have to add? You say the word can have two meanings. Um, so it can mean older people, uh, but usually the context is a little bit different with that. Um, I'm trying to think of the verses off the top of my head. I'm always bad chapter and verse um, where it talks about some have been appointed as uh, apostles, as teachers, as elders, as those things. And so it can mean both. In this particular instance, with the way that it's used, um, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul gives the impression that it's being distributed through the church, through the, the individual pastor or elder, however they, they would classify it um, in each congregation. It's, they're going around passing it out. So here's some food we brought with us, or uh, financial care, or whatever it was at that time. Uh, what about the term disciples? Is that a generic use at that time? Or is that <clears throat> Jesus had 12 disciples. Is, is that a... I think in this instance, the word disciples would be a broad um, use for believing Christians in the congregations. Because at the beginning of Acts, Luke switches from calling them disciples to now apostles. And so disciples, as, as you know, mathetes uh, means learners. Uh, apostolos means those who have been sent. Uh, and so I think here disciples is just general Christians. Um, and I think that elders is pastors. And I think if we were to talk about Peter or uh, John, it would be apostolos uh, at this point. And, and I think, too, considering how important these terms were to St. Paul, who is with Luke helping him record this history, think about how important um, the word apostolos is to St. Paul, who says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'm the least of the apostles, but I'm still an apostle. So I think those terms, uh, what's the word within an organization that it, it begins to take a, a normal word but have specific meaning for it? Is the word, am I thinking jargon or am I thinking something different? Connotation, maybe? Uh, yeah. So we had said that apostle was an eyewitness. There were only... Twelve apostles plus Paul. The word apostle indicates the person is an eyewitness to God sending them out to preach what they saw with their eyes. And so what does Paul see that he preaches? This image where yeah. Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus. He sees the resurrected Jesus say, Paul. What's the deal, yo? Right? That's how we say it in the 90s. Thank you. Thank you for the translation. I'm a millennial too, but... <laughs> uh, okay, what other, any other questions or, or comments? Can you saw what they're talking about here, Paul? Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll see soon when... Right. <laughs> when was Paul in jail in Ephesus? In Ephesus? Yeah. Um, was it in Acts? It's, we'll see it. You, you mean in uh, Philippi? Well, he, he was actually in Ephesus as well. At least that's what they told us, the tour guides. Okay. <laughs> they lied. I don't know. I'd have to check out the Ephesus part. I know he was for sure in Philippi. Um, 
that will be later. It will be a couple of years later. So we could, we could probably put together a pretty accurate timeline of all the things that are in there. Um, I would have to look to come up with a date, but I would say it's probably 50 to 53, somewhere in there, would be my gut feeling. This whole idea of you know, Christian charity makes me think of uh, back in the 50s or maybe early 60s. There was a famine in Africa. You know, pastoral student told me when the Methodist Church had raised millions of dollars for it that a bishop had pledged that amount before the word even went out to the congregations. He was that confident that Christians would respond that way. In no trouble even this pledge. But um, strange things have happened in the last 50 years. Well, it really underlines this passage shows that it's the Word of God operating within the group of disciples. And it's not a tax that is imposed or, or ordered by the elders. It's the disciples determined together on hearing the Word. Right. That they were going to help because there's going to be a family. Right. Yeah, like I said, it's is all about the voluntary service that they gave because they just wanted to help out their brothers and sisters. Yeah. Nothing was required. Nobody said to them, you're not saved unless you give them all of your money. Yeah. This was a response in the gospel. Uh, and again, this was God preparing the church to be in a position where they're prepared to help people. That, that should be part of the overall mission. It's not only to spread the gospel. That's the primary purpose, of course. But the church should also have in mind helping people and uh, helping them with food, helping them with money, whatever it was that they needed at the time. It was all part of what the church was there for. Even, you know, things like uh, we collect offering, and it's really handy, right, because then we can turn the lights on for Bible study. Okay? We don't... We, we try really, really hard not to say things like, if you don't give more, we will leave the lights off. Or, you know what I mean? Because we should not be raising funds by the law. It's not a law. Because if we turn it into a law thing, like if, if we're required to see all of your tax returns every year so we can make sure you're giving the right amount, some churches do that. I don't know that. Okay? That's the law. And when we turn it into a law, what's the issue? Well, I'm going to get into heaven before you because I do more. I do more. Mm. So, sorry. Yes. No, that's great. Uh, then, real quick, let's see if we can fit in a few more Bible verses. So, we'll turn to Galatians chapter 2. So I'll read out loud verses 9 and 10. And when James and Cephas, that is Peter, uh, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So... Paul was eager to go out and serve the poor as well as preach the gospel. They said, okay, you, you and Barnabas, talking to Paul, you and Barnabas go preach to the Gentiles, and then Peter, James, and John were going to go and preach to the Jews. And Paul was, oh boy, I get to go and help the poor and spread the gospel. That was, that was kind of the attitude that they had is, this is this excellent opportunity to go and spread the gospel and help people out. This was 
the attitude that was being cultivated at this time here during Acts was we should be joyfully giving to these people. This is not required. It's not a law, just like Pastor was talking about. This is a response to the gospel. We should want to do this. And still here in the church today, that attitude should prevail. We should want to give money to the church. It's not required, but it's a response of the gospel. It's a joyous occasion that we have the opportunity to give to the church, help out our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, We're going to turn again to Acts chapter 6 and look back at what we have already read. So I'll read Acts 6, verses 1 through 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So here we have ordaining of pastors, or missionaries kind of in this sense, to go out and help serve people. From the very beginning, this was the mindset that they cultivated, was that we're here to spread the gospel and to help people, to serve the poor and the sick and the needy. Uh, This is a great attitude. Any questions before we go to chapter 12 of Acts? All right, we'll go to 12, uh, verse 25. Real quick, I'm going to read chapter 11, verse 30. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So remember, Barnabas and Saul were sent to Judea in order to send money and and help to the people who needed it there. Now in Acts 12, verse 25, getting there, if someone would read verse 25, it would be awesome. All right, so this is them completing that work. They sent them to Jerusalem, They went and they did it, they distributed it, and they're like, okay, we're done, that was our job, and now we're going back. So it wasn't like a permanent situation or anything. It was just specifically for helping the poor, helping the needy and the people who were affected by the famine. They weren't going there to continue to help set up the church or anything. So that was one specific purpose that they had, was helping out. wasn't only to spread the gospel. Uh, So it helps give us a wider picture again of how the church was, I hate to use this terminology, but uh, mission-minded even at the very beginning. Any, Any other questions or comments so far? Then I think we can get through just two more passages real quick before we break. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. We're going to read uh, chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. We can just go verse by verse for this. Yep. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
Uh, go ahead there, Clark, I think. We're on Romans 12, verse 4. Go ahead, Ken. Uh, we are on verse 8. Yeah, I don't have it. Oh, okay. I'll read verse 8 then. Uh, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So here is talking about everyone does according to his abilities and according to what he can do. You can't do more than you can do. So everyone who is able to do it do it, and do it as well as you possibly can. Do it, uh, just the last part here, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We should use our gifts, whether they be financial or abilities or whatever, in service to one another, especially in service of the church and to God. I'm going to read verse 13 of Romans 12 as well. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show has hospitality. This, so the mindset of helping people out was just constantly thread, spread throughout the church. It wasn't just in the apostles or, or over here or over there. Paul is sending this letter to the Romans and he is exhorting them to also help the needy as much as you can. Everyone to the best of their ability. Uh, then to close up the Bible study today, we'll go to James chapter 1. We'll read verses 22 to 27. And then, Job, did you want to read, or should we let Nick read? Okay. Uh, James chapter 1. Twenty-two to twenty-seven. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And then we're on verse 26 of James chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Okay, now I've got a question for you. Is this teaching works righteousness? Is this saying the only way that you can be saved is no. by doing things? Well, he, James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So he's saying, well, if you only hear and you don't actually do, well, then you don't have any faith at all. Because well, that's what it sounds like he's saying, right? Works righteousness. You have to do in order to believe. You're right. No. James is not saying to be saved you have to go out and do all of these works. What he's saying is, don't be a hypocrite. Don't just go to church and just listen and go, ah, oh, yes, I'm so perfect. And then once you leave, 
No one could ever tell you're a Christian by your words or by your actions or by anything. Uh, If you're a Christian, live like a Christian. He's exhorting you to do as you say and do as you should do. Go out and live like a Christian. Don't just give lip service to being a Christian. We see this all the time in society where people will claim that they're a Christian and then they'll go out and start advocating for uh, LGBTQ rights and for abortion and all this stuff, all the while claiming, of course I'm a Christian, I follow the Bible. But that's really not what the Bible teaches. They put their own meaning on everything that the Bible says and claim that's what it really says, and it really doesn't. So, to sum it all up, what should we do? We should go to church, listen to the word, and then after we leave church, go out and live like real Christians, like we really should do. And then when we don't do it perfectly, repent and receive that forgiveness and just keep on going. It's, uh, it sounds simple to do, right? It's always harder than it sounds. All right, I know we're a little bit over. Sorry about that. But uh, any other closing questions or, or comments or anything? Okay, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.